Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a retrospective, Charles Coulomb. Retrospective? You mean like I'm looking to the past? Always. (laughs) Retrospective. So you mean to say that in this month of November, the month of the Holy Souls, in the octave of all saints, during which you can get the plenary indulgence by going to the cemetery, having just gone through all saints and all souls day to say nothing of Halloween, on this 28th, or sorry, 38th anniversary of my having voted for President Reagan for president for the first time, this you're saying that the past is really running through me right now coursing through your veins coursing through my veins 14 years ago we had president obama elected as president of the united states that was a real milestone on our way into the sewer that was a real i mean it, <laughs> hmm? I don't, yes it was a milestone yes it was a real milestone you know america proved on the one hand that it wasn't racist but on the other hand that it was stupid Yeah. Spelt with a capital P. S-T-O-O-P-Y-D. Capital P. Stupid. And it's just gotten more stupid ever since. But that's okay, ladies and gentlemen. Because November 11th is coming. And you know what that means. November 11th? Yes, you see the poppy I'm wearing on my lapel? Yes. You know what it means. You know what it stands for. Um, the remembrance of uh, the veterans of the World Wars? Exactly. The glorious dead. Mm. And throughout the Anglos, people will be wearing poppies between now and then. In the French-speaking world, they will be wearing the Bleuet de France, the blue cornflower. And in the German-speaking world, the Vergess me nicht, the forget-me-not. The flowers of remembrance for the honored dead of the great wars. But unfortunately, something has come to my attention that really annoys me. A very someone very very close to me is a member of the American Legion, and he sent me this note. This stuff is getting beyond belief. Now the American Legion not only has gone woke; it's a danger to women and families. They have passed a measure, see attached, urging Congress to force a woman to register for selective service. This is an incredible sellout of everything the Legion stood for and what has gone before. Check out the wording of this that would send our women out to do our fighting for us. What kind of red-blooded, fully male person could not help but be ashamed of these perverts? I do not want our mothers, wives, and daughters sent in our place or our sons, fathers, brothers to fight alongside confused gender eunuchs. I will be resigning from the American Legion. I will not be affiliated or lend my support 
to such an organization that would send my daughters or granddaughters to war. The Legion is nothing more than a morally bankrupt, organized shakedown of the taxpayer and now an engineered attack on the family. Uh, and the revised convention thing. Regulation uh, number one, this is passed by the American Legion. Whereas the United States military for the majority of American history excluded women from being allowed to serve in the U.S. military and therefore did not allow or require women or any other person that identified with the gender aside from male to be required or allowed to register with the selective service system. And whereas the U.S. military proudly includes individuals identifying with any gender, including those that identify as being agendered, into service in the defense of our nation. And whereby the American Legion believes that service is both an obligation of citizenship and a privilege. And whereas the United States would be well served in any future conflict that would require military conscription to have a full and complete roster of Americans, regardless of gender, that are able to fight and bring their valuable skills and perspectives in service to the nation. And whereas there's been a long-standing sentiment of fairness that if any American should be subject to the draft, that all Americans should be subject to the draft in order to embody the trust and unity that this nation belongs to and must be defended by all Americans. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the American Legion and National Convention, assembled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, August 30th, 31st, September 1st, 2022, that the American Legion urges the U.S. Congress to revise the selective service system to require all Americans 1825 to be registered for service in the case of military conscription. My father was a member of the American Legion. My brother was. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a terrible slap in the face to the honored dead of the great wars. So wear your poppy with pride. But remember. Remember that the country we now inhabit was not the country they died for, and that they would be the first to be disgusted at what we have become. Now, we will have perhaps, maybe, if we're lucky, some slight chance at making things a little bit better a few days before Remembrance slash Armistice slash Veterans Day, and that is November the 8th, my birthday. Tuesday, the day after you'll be seeing this in real time. So go out and vote. Um, go out and vote, ladies and gentlemen. It's interesting that a lot of the Democratic candidates are saying that if they don't win the House and the Senate, it'll be the end of American democracy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would say that that's rather a bit of hyperbole. But I would say that if the Democrats retain control of the House and either keep or expand their, their hold on the Senate, 
we will certainly see the American Legion's resolution passed into law. That's only a small thing. You know, it's only one thing. We'll see, of course, the continued attack on uh, on the rights of the unborn, on the rights of the elderly. We will continue to see the assault on gender. What a mess, ladies and gentlemen. It's 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 very very difficult, but. Who knows? Life has a funny way of not staying the same. In 50 years, things may be very different, even as they were very different 50 years ago, even as they were very different 38 years ago. So be of good cheer no matter what happens. Thanksgiving is coming. Celebrate it. And then, by all means, get ready with Advent to have the best possible Christmas you can. That is the best revenge against these tyrants and morons and unnatural pieces of garbage that are in control. And pray for them. They are human beings. They have souls, which they are doing their best to endanger. Pray for our leadership in the church. Pray for our leadership across the globe. Pray for Biden. Pray for Putin. Pray for peace. As an old joke, the best way to honor the veterans is to not make any more of them. And I believe there's a certain truth to that. Um, so let's all pray very, very hard. And let's all try to have a very good holiday season. And uh, By that, I don't mean to mitigate Christmas. I mean, you know what I mean. I mean Thanksgiving, I mean Advent, I mean Christmas, I mean New Year's, I mean the Epiphany, I mean everything into Candlemas and Mardi Gras before we get ready for Lent. That's what I mean. Hmm. All right. Are you ready for Turkey Lurkey Day? Yes. Are you, uh, are you what are you going to do? Are you going to uh, gonna go to both houses or just your wife's or just yours or? Uh, we're probably going to go to both. Um, I really want to um, go all out and cook a really juicy turkey this time around. I really want to do all the preparations. Historically, my mom is kind of taking care of it, but she's getting up in years, uh, in her 80s. Um, so I really want to sort of get a really tasty turkey. Hmm. So. Really tasty. Yeah, I like tasting. Delicious. Things. Delicious. Yummy. 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 Ten, uh, num num. Yeah. Uh, and then my wife's mom uh, makes pumpkin pie by hand, which is very delicious. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. That's my favorite pie, pumpkin pie. Mine too. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward okay. to this. Um, to uh, I, I've taken off too. I've taken off the days before Thanksgiving, so I have the whole week. So I'm really gonna, really gonna lounge around, just enjoy myself. You gonna watch the? Um, uh, you gonna watch the uh, Twilight Zone marathon? You know, I need to. the The one Twilight Zone that you had me see. Well, actually, you didn't have me see, but you referred to it, and it sounded so intriguing. Um, was they're tearing down? 
Tim Riley's Tim, bar. Tim Riley's bar. I saw that one, and and that was so good. And that well, that, that was Night Gallery, but still. Oh, it was Night Gallery. Interesting. Yeah. But it, it was actually, I think, the best. And the night galleries were pretty good, too. They weren't as good as the Twilight Zone. But they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar was really, it hit me very, very hard. Because, you know, the first time I saw it was when it came out. And if you remember, the man that played uh, Randy's father in the bar. Okay, yeah. His name was Rick Downs. And he was my dad's best friend. Hmm. He was his best man when my parents got married. And you remember the policeman? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm still faster than Al Capone. Well, that was Henry Beckman, who went to school with my dad at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and who was the father of one of my best friends in high school, the late and much lamented Stu Beckman. And the funny thing is, when I first saw that, I knew Mr. Downs. I didn't know Mr. Beckman yet because I hadn't gotten to high school. But it really struck me then. Years later, I saw it again. I was 48 years old, which was the age of the character. Mm. And he was a World War II vet. Think about that. 48 years old, a World War II vet. Now he'd be in his 90s if he were alive. Isn't that something? That is. And the uh, and you saw the um, the secretarial pool was a lot like yours. Remember how excited they were with the chafing very, dish? Very, yeah. It was very uh, cathartic for me to see that. Well, you you felt better about your own secretarial uh, pool. I, I did, I did. The, the <laughs> fact that they like chafing dishes too. <laughs> a chafing dish. Uh. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know my favorite line in that. Uh, in that show? Uh, what? I will tell you. I will tell you. Yes, you should definitely watch the marathon over um, over uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, but my favorite monologue in that thing, one of the... Um, one of the great um, one of the great things about being on the internet is that you can find all of the um, scripts. Just saying. And so, I'm surprised you don't have it memorized. Honestly, you memorize so much. I I wish I did. Um, hmm. I thought I had it. Let's see. So a transcript, and I give up. But he talks about how talks about the the um, what it meant to him. Uh, Huh. That's bizarre. I uh I thought 
Hmm. One more try, and then I give up. Um, see, one of the things about Rod Serling was that a lot of this stuff, when he wrote the scripts, he was very much a... Uh, there we go. I got it. I got it. He, uh, because for him, Tim Riley's bar really sums up um, the past. And he finds out they're going to tear down uh, Tim Riley's bar. And to explain, to try to explain uh, he tries to explain to his um, Now, this is it. Rest in peace, you age of innocence, you beautiful, serene, carefree, pre-Pearl Harbor summer nights. We will not look upon your likes again. It, uh, it's a tremendous, a tremendous quote. Ah, this is the entire quote. He says, farewell, Timothy Riley's bar, home of the Nickel Beer, Snooker Emporium, repository of Bluebird Records, three for a dime. We honor you and your passing. Farewell, farewell, Timothy Riley, and terror planes, rumble seats, and saddle shoes, and Helen Forrest, and the Triple C camps, and Andy Hardy, and Loman Abner, and the world champion New York Yankees. Rest in peace, you age of innocence. You beautiful, serene, carefree, pre-Pearl Harbor, long summer nights. We'll never see your likes again. That, um, that actually came very much from Rod Serling's heart. And believe it or not, my dad agreed completely. I think everybody that age did. Hmm. My father used to say that the worst thing that ever happened to the United States in his time was World War II. Mm. And I think Rod Serling would probably have said the same. Even though both of them and William Wyndham, the actor that was in the show, they all served overseas. They all fought. But it didn't do well for us or for our country. It's also interesting that when uh, William uh, Wyndham in the bar gives his um, remember when they go in and he's drunk and he calls out his unit? Yeah. That was William Wyndham's unit. He actually served in the unit, the actor, I mean. Mm. That was the thing. You see, back then, when I was a boy, I was, I guess, nine years old when that came out. Everybody's father had been in World War II. Uh, except for the younger, the younger fathers have been in Korea, and the grandfathers and great uncles had all been in World War One. And those conflicts in the Depression were very much in living memory to us. You know, we, we grew up with them, and that very much is on my mind. Yes, I am introspective tonight. That is very much on my mind too when I think of 
the forthcoming 11th of November. Um, my dad, from time to time, because of his expertise in history, would be asked to lecture our, um, in my uh, high school on different aspects of history, especially the Civil War, which was especially. And I remember one, uh, one day he gave a, a lecture. It was the last class of the day. So after he finished, he drove me home. And we get in the car, and he was almost in tears. Quite literally, his eyes were wet. And I said, you know, Dad, what's wrong? He said, oh, it's your classmates. He said, they remind me so much of the boys I went to war with. And so many of them didn't come back. Remember that, ladies and gentlemen, none of this stuff is abstraction. When we talk about going to war, when we talk about doing this and that, we're talking about real people in real lives. This is something you'll notice in most countries today. The children of the leadership are not the ones who fight in the wars. They're not. They are. They go to good schools. They go to, to Princeton and get their minds destroyed. And then they get groomed to take their uh, parents' place at the top of the dunghill. Now, such it is. So let's pray, as I say, very, very hard during this holiday season for return to sanity, for something better in the future than what we've seen in the present or the immediate past. Retrospective enough for you? Definitely retrospective. I think we, we can check that box. Um, All right. With macrame or aspic or both? How about none of the above? Let's check that box for there. All right. Moving on. Um, no aspic? No, no macrame? Okay, well, we've got a couple comments. I guess I can read. Um, domestic memes of production. Uh, yeah, okay, memes of production. Nationalize the memes of production for the common good. All right, just a couple comments. Uh, domestic coffee man Bill says, in my junior year of high school, back in two thousand nine, I was in a fiber arts class where we had projects in textiles basket weaving, and macrame. This was a higher-level art class that few students progressed to. And the class macrame. That, class that year only had three people. From my own experience, the ability to weave or macrame items that resemble cute animals will make your female classmates interested. See? No, notice I said the word interested and not attracted. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a start. <laughs> It's a start. I mean, if they're not interested, how can they get attracted, right? That's true. That's true. See, it's an opening. Macrame could open the door to marriage. <laughs> could be. I, I guess, yeah. Uh, you could say that. I wouldn't, you but could. you could. <laughs> you could. <laughs> And the groom macrame, the uh, all of the uh, 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 bridesmaids' wedding outfits. All right. Um, <laughs> well, think about that. Wouldn't that be a picture? 
Three yes. four bridesmaids, all in macrame gowns. Yes, that would be a. I, I think from the, the surrealist school. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, Carol sent in a, a, a letter. Uh, she said, hello, Mr. Frankini. I'm not a patron, so there's no hope for this letter being shared. Oh, sounds did like you she know. made a, little you did made you a mistake. Know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Carol. Yeah. Oh, Carol, I am but a fool. Don't tell me, Carol. Oh, I'm sorry. You were saying? Be that as it may, I am Mr. Coulomb's 60-year-old Southern Californian macrame and aspic and St. Martin's and Yankee Doodle Dandy soul sister. Here, here, here. Wow. Get that? Are you, are you getting this, young one? Yeah. And, oh, okay, great. Wow. Your long-lost soul sister. Um, she said, ha, I sing I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy every year. I found aspic over a piece of ham in shape of a kidney pool with egg and a carrot slice on top at Aldi in Germany. You really should let him know of this inexpensive and easily available culinary find. I would love to be tucking into goose and red cabbage this St. Martin's Day. Finally, I was a 12-year-old in the seven in the 70s buying white macrame string and wooden beads to fashion into hanging pot holders containing spider plants. Does Mr. Coulomb remember how popular spider plants were? Yes, I do. Anyway, I'm also starting Advent fasting early, so I'm also there with Mr. Coulomb and shedding some weight. Ha ha. Uh, Thank you for your shows. May God bless you and your families. Pax Christi, Carol. Thank you so much, Carol. You know, every now and then a letter comes along that tells you you're not entirely insane, that the truth is out there. Okay? Was this X-Files? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And the truth in this case is that macrame and aspic are two foundational elements of our civilization. Wait, macrame and aspect are foundational elements of our civilization. That's right. I'm not buying what you're selling. Oh, no? No. Oh, no? Hold on. Hold on. Kind. Fine. Spider plants. I've seen spider plants. They're ugly things. What? (sighs) They're super ugly. Uh, We had them in the office, uh, a bunch of them. Uh, They're really easy to grow. They're... They're ugly things. Let me let me just look at them. I don't know, just to confirm their ugliness. They're yeah, not ugly. ugly. They're ugly. Especially they've got a macrame potholder. They're not worth growing. That it's <sighs> ridiculous. Wow, we are in a very very belligerent mood today. So you don't like spider plants? No, I don't. All right, what about spider monkeys? Spider monkeys? I'm more in favor of spider monkeys than spider plants. I think Um, so. And spider monkeys, these are pleasing to me. Spider plants, not so much. No. How about spider monkeys in the spider plants eating spiders? Spider Wow, that's a little spider overdose there. Uh, (laughs) little little arachnophobia going on. No, I, I don't go that far into those things um all right we'll move along then move along we're moving into state of the week 
Ooh, confusion, hysteria. We are, you know, it's getting kind of a little hard to get to the state of the week now. I think we're up to number, according to my count, this is going to be number 26. And so uh, this week. We've topped half. Yeah, we're more than halfway through. Um, You know what that means. What does that mean? Canadian provinces. Oh, spare us. Please. Give me the good old U.S. of A. Am I right or am yeah, I right? But, yeah, but I've done the whole good old U.S. of A. I mean, and, and look, I don't mind doing possessions and territories. Yeah, you know, Puerto Rico, Guam, and so on. I don't mind that. Okay. Well, we'll see even how it goes. DC. I'll even do D.C. You know, State of the Week's okay, but it doesn't put any food on the table. You know what I mean? Like a book of the week or something. You know? I mean, we got to survive here. Well, that's true. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Here's a, here's a challenge. If your state is mentioned on State of the Week, buy a book from Tumblr House. That is a great idea, Charles. Yeah. I, I, that, wow. You're, you're going to get a raise this year. You're going to get a little something extra, a little Christmas bonus. You know what I'm saying? God, $7? <laughs> wow. Boy, I'll, I'll invest it wisely. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but no, ladies and gentlemen, we've got 20... 20 uh, uh, four states left plus the territories and so on. So that's my challenge to you. From now on, if your state is mentioned, buy a book. But of course, if you buy two, in all likelihood, you get free shipping and handling. That's right. All right. This week's is Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Who's your daddy? The Hoosier wow. State. Yes, the Hoosier State. You bet. The banks of the Wabash, far away. Are you doing a Music Man song? No, it's it's the banks of the Wabash. Let me see if I can find some okay. lyrics. I thought you, you. I thought you were gonna sing Gary Indiana. No, 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 no. Nor will I uh, sing. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to be with all of the kin in Kokomo, Indiana? No, uh, but the banks of the Wabash is the state song of of Indiana, and on the banks of the Wabash. Let me see. You just get one verse. Oh, the moonlight's fair tonight along the Wabash. From the fields there comes the breath of new mown hay. Through the sycamore the candlelights are gleaming. On the banks of the Wabash far away. Oh, the moonlight's fair tonight along the Wabash. From the fields there comes the breath of new mown hay. Through the sycamore the candlelights are gleaming. On the banks of the Wabash far away. Isn't that lovely? That's the state song. That's wonderful. You know our state song in California? No, I do not, sadly. It's, well, it should be California, here I come, but it's been turned into California, I'm for sale. 
Ah, uh, I see. It's the personal song of our governor. Anyway, going back to Indiana, we're going to go top to bottom in the dear old Hoosier state. Quite literally. We're going to start up in the northern end of Indiana at South Bend. South Bend, Indiana. Most famous as home of the University of Notre Dame. Well, I can't say much about Notre Dame as a college, because certainly not as a Catholic college. But the Basilica of the Sacred Heart is really, really beautiful. The great Arrestus Bronson is uh, entombed in the crypt. And there's some lovely buildings in Notre Dame. Uh, and it's, you know, if it were a Catholic university, it would be great. But unfortunately, it's, you know, what it is. Moving a little bit further south and west, uh, east, rather, you come to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which has a beautiful, beautiful cathedral. And it's, it's, it's really, really, really lovely. Uh, go further south, the state capital, Indianapolis, fascinating joint, beautiful state capital, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. Really, really a lovely, lovely place. We go west and south. We come to my favorite town in all Indiana, Vincennes, spelt Vincennes, with the old church of St. Francis Xavier, built by the French, uh, and all sorts of remaining French bits and pieces. You go a bit further south, you come to Evanston, Indiana, which has all sorts of um, beautiful ethnic churches, German and Polish and so on. It's a, a river town. Corridon is the old territorial capital. And of course, I couldn't, no trip to Indiana would be complete without a visit to Princeton, Indiana. Princeton, Indiana, of course, is famous as the birthplace of that great American television personality, that 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 man beyond the stars, that 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 visionary. I refer, of course, to the amazing Criswell, who was a native of Princeton, Indiana. Oh, and I got to mention Terre Haute, Terre Haute, Indiana, which is the home of the conservatory and was, I believe, the site of the Music Man. There's also West Terre Haute, which is well known for the quality of its uh, uh, mobile home parks. Uh, Indiana is filled with German and Swedish, Polish, Belgian descendants. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a very, very pleasant place. Uh, seemingly every county seat has an impressive courthouse. And there's a lot of beautiful church architecture in Indiana. So believe you me when I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the Hoosier State is worth a good trip. You completely zigzagged. You went from like Fort Wayne on the top, uh, the northeast corner of the state down to, to Evansville, to Evansville yeah. which is the bottom, uh, the, the southwest uh, 
And you completely skipped Indianapolis, which is no. I mentioned Indianapolis. Oh, did you? I said they've got. Yeah, I said you weren't listening. I said they've I... got the state capitol. They've got the. Oh, uh, okay. They've got the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. They've got the cathedral, which I didn't mention. The uh, both Fort Wayne and um, Indianapolis have very lovely cathedrals. Oh, okay. So um, no, I didn't completely zigzag, and I and I could only talk about the places I've been to. I see. I mean, I, I can't. At Princeton, Indiana of course, is kind of the holy land for Criswell enthusiasts next to Hollywood. Hmm. You know, your brother, Steve, never went to Princeton, Indiana. That's a shame. You know, it's so... Have you ever asked him why? Never. It's so interesting. The other thing that's so foreign uh, to a Californian like me is like... um, how everything is kind of close to each other and accessible, like, like California, like the things that border California are Arizona, Nevada, um, and then obviously Oregon. So it's like all the activity is basically in California or, you know, you're in the desert basically. But one of these things, uh, what's so interesting about these States is like Louisville you know, I I obviously just think of Kentucky, but that's right. That's practically in in Indiana. Cincinnati's yeah, right across. on the edge of Indiana. Chicago's mention, on the edge. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me that these towns, which you know I've associated strongly with a particular state, are actually kind of border towns. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, um, next to a state that I have no association with them. Well, our, our friend Nicole comes from Indiana. Yeah, Terre Haute. Yeah. Yeah, so I, that's why I know in particular about West Terre Haute. Yeah, West Terre Haute. Yep. She's described to me the glories of West Terre Haute. Actually, since we did the banks of the Wabash, um, the best-known poet from uh, Indiana was named James Whitcomb Riley. Riley. And he did a poem, which is very appropriate for this time of year which is called When the Frost is on the Pumpkin. Which you may have heard of. I don't know. I have not heard of that. Uh, now you're going to. Aren't you lucky? Here it is. When the Frost is on the Pumpkin. That's a pumpkin, yes. When the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock, and you hear the kyuck and gobble of the strutting turkey cock, and the clacking of the guineas and the clucking of the hens, and the rooster's hallelujah as he tiptoes on the fence. Oh, it's then the times a feller is a-feeling at his best, with the rising sun to greet him from a night of peaceful rest. As he leaves the house bareheaded and goes out to feed the stock, when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. There's something kind of hearty-like about the atmosphere when the heat of summer's over and the coolin' fall is here. Of course we miss the flowers and the blossoms on the trees, and the mumble of the hummingbirds and buzzing of the bees. But the air is so appetizing, and the landscape through the haze of a crisp and sunny morning of the early autumn days is a picture that no painter has the coloring to mock when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. The husky, rusty rustle of the tassels of the corn and the rasping of the tangled leaves as golden as the morn. The stubble in the furries, kind of lonesome-like, but still a preaching sermons to us of the barns they growed to fill. The straw stack in the meadow and the reaper in the shed, 
the horses in their, stows, in their stalls below, the clover overhead. Oh, it sets my heart a-clicking like the ticking of a clock when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. Then your apples all is gathered and the ones the feller keeps is poured around the cellar floor in red and yellow heaps. And your cider making's over and your women folks is through with their mince and apple butter and their sauce and sausage too. I don't know how to tell it, but if such a thing could be, as the angels wantin' boarding and they'd call around on me, I'd want to accommodate them, all the whole enduring flock, when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. There you go, a touch of Indiana. Who's your daddy? Okay. No, I can't. I can't do Hoosier humor. Ah, uh, all right. Um, you got a problem with the banks of the Wabash far away? Mm -hmm. I don't. Uh, Hoosiers is one of my all-time favorite movies. Actually, that's a fantastic. What's Have you that? ever seen Hoosiers? Shame on you! Shame on you! Gene Shame. Hackman, classic Shame. movie. Yeah. Shame. That that's embarrassing, honestly. Shame. Uh, Shame. Shame. Yeah. Anyhow. I'll make a deal. You watch the you watch the Twilight Zone marathon. I'll watch Hoosiers. How's that? I'll do. How, well, how come I have to? So a merit. I have to watch a marathon so you can watch one movie. Yep. I don't like that deal. <laughs> Too bad. Tough. It's a hard world. Hard world out there, pal. All right. Um, all right. On to the questions. Um, we've got a great question from Tom who says, uh, Vinny and Charles, I have a practical prayer question for you. How do you personally manage bringing prayer intentions to God? I don't know about either of you, but I feel like I have countless intentions that pop in and out of my mind throughout a day, week, month, etc. Write them down, which would help keep these intentions present as I pray. At the same time, I feel like going through a list of prayer intentions could take up a lot of time during prayer. Please help. Thank you. Well, this really hits the personal issue thing. Uh, I pray for a lot of different things, but I also pray for the things I promised to pray for yeah. and that I've forgotten to. I mean, literally in, in that kind of speech. Um, and I, I also make a point if someone sends me a request for prayer on Facebook or uh, Twitter or something like that, uh, I see a quick Hail Mary right there and then sort of add it to the pile, if you know what I mean. Um, but I, but these are things that are very, very personal. I mean, you, you, you have to work these things out for yourself. There's no one right way to do it. Right. Uh, absolutely. And there, there are so many different mentalities for it. Um, I cannot deny that I have had, this has been a big question in my mind uh, for a long time. I know uh, one of the interesting approaches Mother Angelica mentioned is that she says a prayer intention and then that's it. And that God's got it. Um, and then you don't need to worry about it anymore. You don't need to worry about constantly um, repeating it otherwise you know it gets lost in the void and it's not counted as a prayer intention um yeah so i kind of like that i've kind of attached that belief to my system 
so that if I happen to forget that, don't worry, it's counted. But at the same time, I like to be able to spend some time uh, specifically mentioning the top of the heap. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to treat um, God like Santa Claus all the time, you know, like, no. well, just give all all the things and then we'll keep worshiping you. No, I, I don't, I feel like I have to be careful because I feel like that can be a trap, especially for me. And I want to spend a lot of time doing it's It's easy to have that, you know, your intentions be your focal point compared to um, areas of Thanksgiving and adoration. Right. I was yeah. I was gonna say you should give you should do Thanksgiving as much as you request. It, it, there you go. That's a good. I like that. And then and then adoration, glorifying him, should be if you if you were to divide it into thirds, I'd say half glor half glorification, a, a, a quarter um, a quarter uh, requesting and a quarter thanking. Yeah. Yeah, but, so I mean, it, these are it, you know well, things. While, while I say the Santa Claus thing, I mean it. It also at the same time, it's kind of a strange balancing act because while you don't want to treat him as Santa Claus, you also have to uh, recognize that all of good comes from God, and that you're completely dependent on Him. And He wants you to ask. And, and He wants you to ask. Uh, that reminds me of uh, like a different sort of kind of. Um, image that I put in my mind where it's like, you know, you ask once, so it's on his list, but then you ask again, it's kind of like, um, touching base with a quartermaster where a quartermaster is rationing out things. And it's like, okay, Especially if you ask is. once he's, you're, you're there, but you ask more, it's like, okay, I, I got you, buddy. Okay. I'll finally give you your stuff. And and also uh, the same is true with intercessory prayer from the saints and Our Lady and so on. Um, but you know, again, so much of this really is terribly subjective. And uh, you know, you also, when it comes to prayer, you shouldn't be afraid to just talk to God either. You know what I was just thinking about the other day because we were thinking about um, funny show titles, and my mind was just wandering. But one of the favorite segments you mentioned. Um, that we did was stealing prayer intentions. Oh yeah. Stealing prayer could, intentions. could you say that again? Cause I, I didn't get every, I can't remember everything that was. Well, there. this was a joke. Your brother and I came up with yeah. many years ago. And it's the idea of a person who goes to mass and he decides other people's prayer, you know, his community intentions to his things. You know, the old, the old lady over there in the gray hat, I'm offering her communion for my cousin Clarence. <laughs> Oh, that guy in the three-piece suit? Yeah. Yeah, that's for my new BMW. Uh-huh. <laughs> he looks like he doesn't need his prayer intentions. It's weaponizing <laughs> the, uh, the mass, basically. You know, it's it's going there and stealing, stealing prayer intentions. Why can't you do that, you know? Well... <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm joking. I, I can't. I don't know. But the other thing it, you could do too is something that's on my mind a good deal right now, of course, is you can offer up your pain and unpleasantries uh, as prayer. And you can also offer up your joys. And I think people tend to forget that. 
Well, like when you when you find yourself in a situation where you're like, "Wow, this is just great," you can offer up that that joy, that pleasure. Well, see, when you said that to me, I mean, I know I say that in my morning offering, I I say that part, um, but we we got a specific question on that on the show, I think, and then you answered it, but I still don't understand it. It feels weird to me because when we offer up something, it's like we're doing work or we're sacrificing something or there's some sort of exchange or trade-off. But if you're offering up joy, that's like that's like a win-win. Like you didn't actually do anything or you didn't merit it's anything. It's gratitude. It's just gratitude. Of course you didn't merit anything, but it's gratitude. You offer up your joys. You're... you're Showing your gratitude from whence, uh, for the from whom they came, to whom, to him from whom they came. I mean, it's it's, uh, and you're acknowledging when you do that that the source of your joy ultimately is him, no matter what the proximate cause may be. Hmm. I see. You're acknowledging. Okay. No, and that. You're 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 making him. You're consciously making him part of it, a part of the moment. Shall we say? Ah, uh, okay. I think I can grasp that better now. Which he, I mean, which he is. You know, any anything. Well, of course, he's part of anything that's involving you. But anything that you come to, that's good. It comes from him. He is the giver of all good gifts, and that and we tend to forget that somehow. I mean, we remember him when we're in pain and when we're worried and when we're upset. But we tend to forget him when things are going well. And, of course, that's precisely the time that we ought to really remember him because that whatever reason, whatever they're going well, it's his doing. Hmm. All right. Uh, question from Jared. He's uh, He says, hello, Vincent and Charles. I have a question for Charles regarding capital punishment in the papal states. I know that throughout church history, the church did not put people to death directly, but secular authorities tried individuals and carried out sentences, like during the Inquisition. However, how did capital punishment work in the papal states where the governmental authorities were the church? Well, it worked the way it did in every other uh, civil uh, government because the papal states were first and foremost a country. They were a temporal country with a, with a temporal government, which in its higher echelon were primarily staffed by, uh, by uh, clerics, but whose lower ranking was not. It was staffed by laymen. And so you had capital punishment in the papal states. Now, it's also very true, though, that uh, the papal states were notorious for uh, pardons. And they, they got a lot of them. They, there's certain feast days, people would get pardoned en masse. And, of course, if a, uh, uh, often enough, if the Holy Father was passing by in a coach and somebody was about to be executed, very often he'd pardon them then and there and commute it to uh, imprisonment. Um, but they certainly did uh, execute murderers and rapists and people like that. Hmm. Right. Uh, Vonde Radio has a question for you. He says, Dear Charles, 
Which political party in the world, with at least national representation, would you say is most closely aligned with Catholic social teaching? In a solid traditional way, rather than a Pope Francis way. There are slim pickings, but my guess would be something like the Confederation of the Polish Crown, which has one seat in Poland's same. I'm interested if there are others you can think of. Uh, there are a couple. I mean, I would think of the Karuna Czeska in Czechia, oddly enough. Fidesz in Hungary. Um, I w- I'm sure there's got to be something in the Philippines, but I can't think of a name. Uh, the Philippines, incidentally, are... Um, the Philippines right now are... Uh, what's the word I want? Uh, they're under a lot of pressure because uh, abortion is not legal in the Philippines. And, well, let me see. Abortion's not legal, and they don't have divorce, and they don't have gay rights. And so the UN has kind of given them a uh, ultimatum. So we'll what, see if any of the... What's ultimatum? Well, that they need to get with the program and become like the United States and all of the civilized countries. Uh, you know, divorce, uh, gender confusion, and um, infanticide. I thought, there were, I thought there were a lot more countries that didn't do I thought Nigeria didn't do that, too. Uh, Nigeria? I don't I, know. I thought like the, that Nigerian, either a politician or, or a cardinal said something like, Oh, I see. We're not going to take your uh, aid. You know, we're not going to... We're not going to impose this your liberal agenda for the sake of, of well, you? That, yeah and that was the 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 president of kenya was like that yeah uh the president of kenya was was uh you know he re, he refused gay rights to um uh president obama who was busy trying to force him into it i i didn't think gay rights was a big thing in africa in general well, it's not, but they inherited the European uh, law, legal codes that banned it, especially in the British colonies, in Kenya and Uganda and places like that. So, so they've maintained them, and that, for, for creatures like President Obama, becomes a real problem. No, but my point is you seem to be singling out the Philippines when at Just least I'm under the, the impression that Philippines is – at least it didn't seem to be that extraordinary compared to other countries' policies. Well, its divorce laws are. Literally, the Vatican and the Philippines are the only countries that don't permit divorce today. Wow, so the divorce thing is what gets everyone's goat. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Hey, when you're ruled by scum, they, they have their... Look, scum have their own agenda too, Okay. What's wrong with living pieces of garbage not having decisions they want made? Yeah, got you there, smart guy. Let me tell you something. If it weren't for living pieces of garbage, we wouldn't even have a government today. Okay? Yeah. Try that one on for size. How would you like to go to the White House, the Capitol building, and have them empty? Nobody at the switch. I thought that was due to St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland. 
Yeah, that too. They all came over here. But the problem is, they went everywhere else too, seemingly. I mean, uh, imagine if every garbagey ruler were removed by some miracle, sort of a counter-rapture. If they all vanished, think of where we would be today. A counter-rapture? Yeah. Wow. Like an anti-rapture. All the all the schmucks get taken away. The, the the halls of power would echo in their emptiness. How would you like that, huh? It would be horrible. We would be like a rudderless ship. There'd be no captain on the bridge. That's okay. I mean, I what do you like... Who's going to steer the ship? Some enterprising individuals. It doesn't work that way. They don't know <laughs> no, how. they haven't been trained. No, <laughs> they haven't been trained. Instead, you just have a lot of empty offices all across the planet, and you know a lot of people running around not knowing what to do with themselves. Pretty wow. ugly picture, isn't it? That's sad. I'll say. All right, so so you're telling me that. Philippines has to accept divorce or it's out of the United Nations? Is that No, I'm really just saying, saying I don't know how they'll be punished. I'm just saying the UN told them they have to. So the question is, in response to Vande Radio, there must be somebody, some party in the Philippines that backs the status oh, quo. Oh, right. Of course. And whatever party that is. Now, it may be that it's one of the ruling parties and they'll tell the UN to go get stuffed. But whether there is or whether there isn't, there is a group, I, I have no doubt, there's one of the Filipino parties that firmly support the status quo. Hmm. So, And whoever they are, I think, would fit in with what Bondi Radio asked. I didn't know Philippine, uh, the Philippines were in that sort of state. Um, I thought they had well, like a, a difficult and annoying president. Well, they've had all that. But you've got to bear in mind that they're a Catholic country. And when our constitution was framed, and their legal framework was set up. They were very Catholic people. And to a great degree, that hasn't changed. A lot of the Filipinos, um, you know, are some of the best and most Catholic people you'll ever find. And they've certainly spread the faith to weird places like the Persian Gulf. We wouldn't expect it. Hmm. Right? Uh Right, a question from Nicholas, who says, I know Charles has previously made comments sympathetic to early Christian Democrats. Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira wrote in 1967, quote, The Christian Democratic Party of Italy is an ideological and political device specially made to drag right-wingers and, above all, na naive centrists to the extreme left. What do you make of that claim, Charles? Well, I would say two things. One, it was certainly not the intention of the original Christian Democrats, people like de Gasperi and um, Schumann and Adenauer, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's certainly what the Christian Democrats have become. So what I think... Uh, uh, Professor de Oliveira, um, I think the way he operates according to revolution and counter-revolution, I think one of his uh, theses uh, was 
the the concept of semi counter revolutionaries, these these tweener people, that yeah. they end up ultimately degenerating to revolutionaries. I believe that was his philosophy in that that's what happened here, despite um, the best of intentions by the founders. Yeah, I, I would say, though, that how do I put it? You can't you, you've got to be aware of simplifying it too much. Hmm. In other words, while I guess you would say ultimately I agree with him, uh, Christian democracy came out of several different realities. One was the collaboration of um, Catholics with varying kinds of non-Catholics, Protestants, liberals, and um, um, socialists, and even communists, against the Nazis during World War II. So that was one thing. Uh, the second is that Western Europe was dominated by the United States after World War II. So anything that would not please the United States wasn't going to go anywhere. It was a non-starter, especially in, in a Europe that was not just shattered, but dependent in the first few years on the Marshall Plan. So, uh, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of them did the best they could with what they had. But ultimately, the let's just say that ultimately the problems inherent in what they were trying to do emerged to the garbage that we have now, where the so far from being Christian, the so-called Christian Democratic parties are just basically government job shops, you know, without any any real ideology of their own. Hmm. All right. Um, bunch of questions from French guy number one. Okay. Always a good time. Um, he says, hail to the newly recovered czar of the bazaar, the formerly septic, non-skeptic Charles Coulomb. Love that. Hmm. And the Italian stallion, the sage of the page, Don Vincenzo. That's you. Very glad to hear Charles will remain amongst the living for the foreseeable future. Mm, let's hope. Get well soon. I have a few questions which I hope the czar will graciously answer. Firstly, could Charles explain the origins of Christian democracy, what it actually stands for? I find it fascinating, but have always had trouble understanding it. It seems now that most Christian de democratic parties in Europe have become Christian in name only and have yes. turned into bland centrists who try to win elections by being fundamentally inoffensive to everyone. But what were they originally? Well, originally, as I said, the uh, prior to World War II, in most stations in Europe, you had one or more Catholic parties who were generally uh, in favor of the, um, well, they began, uh, the Catholic political movement began in the early 19th century in Europe, partly in response to the French Revolution and partly in response to the Industrial Revolution. So initially they had four major points. Uh, they were in favor of the church having a dominant role in society, uh, 
the church in, in uh, favor of a traditional Catholic monarchy, of local liberties, subsidiarity, etc., and of uh, class cooperation, solidarity, as we would say today, and in favor of the Catholic confessional state. Now, this was the case up until World War II. During World War II, the experience of uh, the German occupation and resistance thereto basically split people in this mindset. Some thought that um, it would be possible to achieve their goals by collaborating with the Axis, and they were destroyed with the Axis in 1945. Others thought, well, no, the thing to do is to uh, collaborate with the resistance and fight the obviously anti-Catholic, anti-Christian Nazis and so on. And they did. But they, these guys were the start of uh, Christian, of the post-war Christian Democrats. But as I just said, uh, they were hobbled by a lot of difficulties, one of them being they're having to collaborate with a lot of non-Catholic groups before the war or during the war and after, the immediate aftermath. And secondly, not being able to support anything that ultimately did not have the approval of the United States. Uh, in 1968, well, a couple of things happened. After Vatican II, as part of that time, the institutional church had supported the Christian Democratic parties in their efforts to maintain the Catholic nature of countries like Italy, Spain, parts of Germany. After Vatican II, the church got out of politics in the sense of no longer supporting the Christian Democrats in their specifically Christian mission. Uh, a good example of this, for instance, was in Austria, where the Austrian bishops refused to support the Christian Democrats in fighting abortion in order to avoid a culture war. So this gave politicians whose Christianity was based upon collaboration with a more or less activist hierarchy it, it kind of ripped the stuffings out of them. And now, after that, they became gradually what they are now. As he so well describes, centrist people who don't stand for anything, except, I would say, government jobs. What can we learn from the Christian Democrats moving forward as, you know, our views, you know, get, uh, manifesting our views into a political party that doesn't compromise and is successful? That's the $35 question, because, of course, the system itself uh, is kind of stacked against that kind of thing. Exactly. So you're in a position where there is no level playing field. And you to, to play the game, you've got to uh, accept a lot of the premises of the opposition. I don't have an answer for that because, of course, you, you have Scylla and Charybdis. One is being so pure that you're totally irrelevant, and the other is being so pragmatic, as we see with the Christian Democrats, you don't stand for anything. Obviously, you've got to be somewhere in between there, but what that looks like at the moment, I can't tell you. It may be that what's necessary is 
the teaching of, shall we say, political and social doctrine, uh, in hopes that when the system collapses, people who hold it are in a position to take advantage of whatever the situation offers. I see. So you actually fundamentally disagree with uh, Professor de Oliveira um, because you're suggesting a middle ground, some level of compromise, whereas I believe de Oliveira would say no compromise. It well, he, he, would say, he would say no compromise because he ultimately believed, if I remember correctly, that there would be a terrible chastisement, everything would collapse, and then it would be time for the counter-revolution to take place. Um, and that may indeed happen. But if there's, the, the problem is that the more things collapse, the more they have to be rebuilt. So wait, so you're saying that his paradigm was based on not necessarily organically growing, but just being ready and wait for an opportunity. Yeah, well, while he would he would say you want to grow your vision in the meantime, so that there is an alternative to be offered when the time comes. But it was very much, if I remember correctly, and I, I'm willing to be corrected if I'm wrong, if I remember correctly, there was a certain, not quite apocalypticism, but uh, he was expecting that the, the current order would, would break down of its own contradictions. I mean, the problem with the revolution, as he illustrated it so well, is that ultimately it can't sustain itself. I mean, everything we have that works is a remnant of what came before. And it's constantly being eroded. So the time will come when the things that allow society to function are gone. And when that happens, there'll be a big change. What that will look like, I cannot imagine. But I mean, you know, it's, it's if you keep spending money out of your wallet, and you don't put anything into it, eventually you've got an empty wallet and you can't buy anything. Well, societies are like that. That's an antiquated paradigm or an antiquated um, metaphor uh, because Fine. we have credit now. Yeah, well, but you you run up your credit card, guess what? Eventually you run out. If you don't, If you don't pay up, if you're not paying your credit card, eventually you run out of credit and then you're stuck. You just go into deeper and deeper levels of financial slavery. Uh, well, that's always company. <laughs> but no, I mean, these things are limited. Uh, these things are quite limited. And, you know, how, how far can we go destroying the family? How far can we go? Because remember, everything that allows a society to function, individuals learn in the family. But if you, uh, you approach a moment when there are so many people who are so dysfunctional that society simply can't can continue. It just won't. I mean, you know, we're in the armed forces. We're hearing about the vast numbers. They have not been able to recruit. How uh, most kids today are out of shape and so on and so forth. Well, 
you keep doing going down that path, eventually you don't have anyone in the armed forces at all. And then what do you do? You know, similarly, the state of California is constantly eroding its tax base. Well, eventually you don't have a tax base. Then what do you do? You can't take... You definitely see that. Like, you definitely see, like, there are um, quantifiable, like, sort of metrics that we're just kind of measuring right now. Like, so that's one, right? The, um, the tax base. Number two, the homeless, obviously. Like, you can actually map that out geographically, quite literally, yeah. um, in and terms it, of where it, they are. Number three, um, state of mental health, to be honest, especially in young people. Um, is it's pretty poor, uh, yeah. And and it, and when enough of them are screwed up enough, things just won't work anymore. Now, what that will actually look like, how that will work out, I have no idea. Huge opportunity, but I do know for Vincent What's Franchini. That? Huge opportunity for Vincent Franchini, strongman. Well, indeed, indeed. <laughs> no. especially if you lock up the tower you know, <laughs> and, and just you know, give Tyrone orders to kill uh, on site. No one's allowed in or out. You know, you could control your own section of the universe. But, but OK, yeah, I, w- I don't want to derail you. Sorry. But no, I, I mean, it's just that we have a limited amount of cultural capital and we're destroying it. Uh, Mutatis Mutandis. I may have used this simile before about the uh, worker bees laying eggs. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, that's what's happening. The worker bees are laying eggs. We have more and more and more drones. And the workers aren't being replaced. And eventually, it, the thing will collapse. It just can't continue this way indefinitely. Well, what's shocking to me is not necessarily that um, that there, you know, the, the problem is escalating, um, but the it's not even turning into a voter issue. It's not even being no. talked about. Yeah, like, no. where we, um, my wife and I, we watch Jeopardy every day, and so many political ads, and it's just all pro-abort stuff, and it's like, well, we've got like. A handful of pretty serious, you know, economical uh, economic um, issues here in California, and but no one seems to to mind the economy, the state of the economy. Well, it's all well, about no. killing babies. I, it's strange. To well, me. see, they have an alternate view. If you sacrifice enough babies to Moloch, he will give you prosperity. So much for separation for between church and state. Well, yeah, but not through Temple of Moloch and state. <laughs> uh. Besides, besides, it it worked really great for Carthage, didn't it? Carthage got put in the dirt, and they put salt over it, so nothing would grow. I knew that. Yeah, but who, it worked until then. Who would be so? If we're Carthage, who's Rome? Russia, China. Somebody. Don't say Russia. That's somebody. I don't know. I mean, Mexico, Brazil. Who knows? Let's go with Mexico. That's that's a fun one. Imagine that. that would be <laughs> a lot of people would be upset. I mean, you know, it's like the the Brazilian election just now. The, Bolsonaro was uh, 
edged out by Lula. Who's that? And Lula is a left winger, and he was heavily supported by the United States, you know, because we don't interfere in other countries' elections. We, we object to that and stuff. But he won like 51.1% of the vote or something. It was. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, two million. It was really, really, really bad. And where is that going to end? I don't know. In the good old days, there'd be a coup d'etat. Lula would be out on his ear, and the army would have played someone. But I don't know if the army in Brazil is up to that anymore. Hmm. I see. Um, I'm scanning his Wikipedia for the word communist. I'm kind of disappointed. All right. Um, communist? Biden. Oh, sorry. Okay, there we go. Um. All right. Next question. Um. Given Charles is currently residing in Austria in the aftermath of the presidential election, could he give us a rundown of how Austrian politics functions, particularly in regards to the Freedom Party of Austria? My understanding is that much like the Front National. Is a very mixed bag, but they have, uh, but that they ha- do have a lot of traditional Catholics in their ranks. No, your, your understanding is quite correct. Basically, the uh, major parties in Austria are the OVP, the Austrian People's Party, which is the descendant of the Christian Social Party of before World War II. Uh, it was a great party back then. Now it's become a uh, standard Christian Democrat. Uh, They're the majority party at the moment. You have the Greens, with whom they're in coalition, and the Greens are as stupid as they are anywhere else. You have the Socialists, who are stupid and elderly, as opposed to the Greens, who are young and stupid. And then, lastly but not leastly, you have the Freedom Party. Now, the Freedom Party is interesting because it originates from the old Liberal Party, and they were anti-clerical, and they were German, pan-German nationalists. But that was a long, long time ago. And after World War II, for a long time, they were just kind of like the free Democrats in um, Germany. That is to say, economically liberal and not really standing for much, but ready to form a coalition with whomever would take them. However, about 20 years ago, because of a man named Jörg Haider, who kind of changed them into what they are now. They became very much like the National Front. And they are exactly the kind of mixed bag that our our questioner describes. And there are a lot of traditional Catholics among them. Um, They also have some kind of strange elements as well. But as in the rest of Europe, Austrian politics is really in a very, very bad way, not least because... They're still suffering from the anti-Habsburg um, pro-Karl Renner garbage that, uh, well, that the Republic was built on. And when you're built on a lie, it's pretty bad. Hmm. All right. Um, final, well, not question, but final segment of the show today uh, yeah. French guy number one has given us a lightning round. How do you like that, oh. Charles? 
Oh, lightning round. All right. All right. Uh, so you're going to have, uh, so he's going to say a person, place, or thing. And you're going to say one word that, you know, like what you think of, what it makes you All think right. of. All right. That's it. Liz Truss. Loser. Hallmark Christmas movies. Once nice. Uh, once nice. Formerly good. Wow. Okay. Uh, Jansenism. Annoying. Oliver Stone and his movies. Interesting. Hmm. Maurice Chevalier. Miss him. The Prosperity Gospel. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, King James Onlyism. Irrelevant. The Beatles. Dead. Whoa. Whoa. That was okay. Um, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow. Confused. People who wear masks in their cars. Silly. Boris Yeltsin. Miss him. Ooh. Peter Sellers. Funny. Modern art. Ugly. The Catholic Cathedral of Liverpool. Ugly. Pyramid schemes. Government. <laughs> Gosh. I does it make me a bad person if I thought lucrative? Um. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know. I mean, uh, um, anyway, let's yeah, move on. Okay, moving on. Um, homeo homeopathy. I don't know how you pronounce that. Interesting. Enoch Powell. Prophetic. The Princess Bride. Fun. Secular humanism. Ridiculous. And uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Dead. <laughs> oh, I like that. Don't even comment that I'm just dead. That, you know, that's dead. very appropriate, too. With his God is dead? No, you're dead. Um, Nietzsche is dead. Nietzsche is dead. Uh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> dead. <laughs> <That's>, well... Uh, <laughs> Yes, Nietzsche is still dead after all these years. All right, Charles. Um, that we've had a good solid episode. Looks like we're over an hour and twenty minutes. Um, any closing thoughts? Yeah, get ready for Thanksgiving. Get ready for Christmas. Uh, do the best you can Tuesday. Do the best you can on the eleventh. Both in in voting and remembering. Remember our glorious dead when you vote. And this is the time of year in particular to be retrospective and nostalgic, so do it. Hmm. Don't be ashamed of it. And as that, be sure to try to keep Advent as best you can. And may Christmas and New Year's and the Epiphany be joyous for us all.
I do have a question for you, though. Go ahead. What is it if it's Monday? It's off the menu. And the soul you save? Maybe you're on. God bless you all, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll see you next week.